Our gospel lesson this morning is found in Luke chapter 1. We are reading verses 26 through 38, and we'll be following the early chapters of the gospel of Luke for the next several weeks during the season of Advent. Luke 1 verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative is Elizabeth, in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. As we come to your word this morning, Father, we ask that the same Spirit who allowed Mary to conceive in a miraculous way would give us understanding and illumine our hearts and minds and lead us in the way of your truth. We ask that you speak, God, for your servants are here to listen. Amen. As I've shared with you before, as a child, my summers were spent playing baseball. Most everyone played, whether you were good or bad, up to your 15-year-old year. And so this took you into what was called Babe Ruth. Now, Babe Ruth had a curious arrangement to it. 14 and 15-year-olds played in Babe Ruth, but there was just a 13-year-old league after Little League. And so Babe Ruth, they, all the coaches would gather, scout the 13-year-olds, and then draft them onto their team. And so long before the days of fantasy football and its draft, the draft was a big deal. It would, it would just take over life in my town of when you got drafted and who you were drafted onto. Now, my Babe Ruth team, Peeler's Sporting Goods, was under the leadership of Coach Stuckey. Coach Stuckey had been with me for several years, and on our Babe Ruth team one year, he made a gamble. He was going to put all his eggs in one basket. It was an enormous gamble. Because what Stuckey decided to do, there was a small exception that was, you could take in the draft. If you wanted to draft a player who was outside of the city limits, you could draft that player and give up five draft selections. And Coach Stuckey decided that Jimmy Rouse was worth it. And he was. He was a man-child, 15 years old, 
massive, bulking, had a fastball like you wouldn't believe. He could run, he could catch, he could pitch, he could do it all. He was the hope of Peeler's sporting goods. Everyone thought we were going to be a sensation in the league that year. He was certainly worth five draft picks. Early in the season, we were to be tested. We were facing one of the other really good teams who also had their own star player. He was Montez Barrett. He was an even bigger man-child, already a major league prospect at that point. It was a showdown of epic proportions. School was not out when we were playing. A lot of people came to the game that night. It wasn't so much about our team as it was about Montez versus Jimmy. Jimmy was pitching. And so I remember Montez's first at bat. I had the unfortunate privilege of playing left field, and he was a right-handed hitter, and I was so scared. I needed a paper bag to avoid hyperventilating nearly, because what if he hit a line drive? It might kill me. That's what I mean. I was so frightened by what was about to happen. And the first pitch, Jimmy throws a low fastball, and I remember the connection. It was a line drive to left center. I began to run as fast as I could over to the ball and then realized that I was at the fence, and it was gone. Montez won, Jimmy zero. The epic showdown was underway. The game unraveled and fell apart from there. Montez later came to the plate, and I was once again in left field, and Jimmy threw as hard as he could, a bit of his spurned pride. He throws a high fastball, and he didn't have to move this time. I just sat there planted and watched the ball rocket over my head. And it landed somewhere way outside the ballpark in the parking lot of Ernie's subs. I mean, it was incredible how far the ball went. And that night, we were destroyed. And it didn't just destroy us for one game. We were destroyed for the whole season. All our eggs were in this one basket, a man-child named Jimmy Rouse, someone that we had hoped in, that was going to deliver us and save us. We had given up five draft picks for him. And our whole season came unraveled because Jimmy was not invincible. No, he was just another player, and Montez Barrett had bested him. And so we lost that game, and we lost nearly every other game. We were 3-15. and 15. <laughs> Winning one of those games by forfeit. <laughs> it was a miserable season. Awful. And Coach Stuckey learned a hard lesson. Putting your eggs in one basket is risky business. It limits you. It reduces your options. It marries your fate to the fate of one other thing. When you put your eggs all in one, it leaves you with only one hope. And when we read these nativity stories... We're in great danger of missing them. We can be so familiar with these stories. Oh, the sweet birth of Jesus, his coming into the world, the miraculous thing that happened, the angels and the fanfare. And it can simply hit hard ears and we can miss the entire import of what's being said. It's important for us to recognize there is a drama unfolding here in Luke 1. And God is putting all his eggs from a human perspective in one basket. He confines all the hopes for his world in one place. And that is what we're reading about. 
is the coming of all of that hope in one place in the person of Jesus. It's important for us to investigate that just a bit this morning, to ask the question, what is happening? And there's two parts to the story about what is happening as God puts all his eggs in one basket. And the first piece of this is that God is creating by his power. It is this strange interaction where the angel, Gabriel, promises to Mary that she will have a son. She asks an astute, very fair question. How will this be since I am a virgin? See, she was engaged, and engagements in the ancient world went on for about a year. A 12-year-old girl could be engaged, and then she would marry roughly around year 13. And so Mary was somewhere in that process. She was engaged, but she was not married to her husband Joseph yet. And so she says, how is it going to happen? It can't. The arrangement doesn't work. But then the angel says, significantly, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. Now, for many people, when they hear this, they say, well, that's just the stuff of fables. That's the stuff of the ancient world, tales of heroes being born. But what is being said is significant for us to unpack and understand Because what Luke is claiming here is that God is doing something in the same way He did something in Genesis 1 and 2. You'll remember in Genesis 2-7, God takes the dust of the ground and He breathes into it, and the word for breath is spirit in the Old Testament, and God brings life. He creates life. And so here, with the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary, Life is created, and God is forming now a new man and sending him into the world. And so people at times struggle with incarnation, and if you struggle with incarnation, you also have to struggle with creation, because it's the same God speaking and acting in Genesis 1 and 2 that's speaking and acting here in Luke 1. God is creating by His power. As a college minister, I worked at a small school called Presbyterian College in the upstate of South Carolina. And the school was on a different theological trajectory than the church that I worked for. And one of the professors at the school was fond of me. He enjoyed theological conversations with me, and he was somewhat trying to also educate me. And so he asked me one day, he said, well, what do you believe about the virgin birth? I said, well, you know, and I'd just been reading about it. I said, I find it fascinating because the way the story is told in Luke 1 is very similar to some other birth stories in the Bible. Like you could look in Judges 13 would be a good example, the announcement of Samson's birth by an angel. And it's patterned in a very similar way, these encounters with the angels. And so my professor friend, he looked at me, he said, exactly. Exactly. He said, and that just lets you know that this was all just a fable and story, that it doesn't really matter how Jesus came into the world. Because, you see, it was just patterned off of this Old Testament example, and it was just all kind of made up by Luke. But what's important is that Jesus came. But here's the thing. The incarnation is deeply tied to creation. 
And if you believe that God spoke the world into existence, that He's the one who has the power and capacity to do so, then He has the power and capacity to speak over this young girl's womb, over her virgin womb, and to create and send life once again, just as He did in the beginning. That is what is being claimed here. And so, yes, the story is similar to some of the birth narratives, but when you compare them, they are also remarkably different. Because none of those stories claim that the child to be born was the Son of the Most High. None of them claim that the Spirit is the one who brought life into an empty womb. It's unique. And it's rather demeaning for us to just say that ancient people were just silly, that they weren't culturally sophisticated. They knew exactly what was being written. Luke, what we know about him, he's a very educated man. He wrote very fine Greek. He understood what he was doing and writing and saying, and he was writing it for a wealthy patron who had commissioned him to write this gospel. Luke understood very clearly that he was saying this was a fresh act of creation, Yes, it doesn't go on every day. It went on once when God spoke Jesus into existence inside of Mary's womb. So this is the first thing happening. God is creating by His power. Now the second is that God is creating by His power in order to make good on His plans to save the world. This is why God puts all of his eggs in one basket. It's because he's determined to make good on his plan or his promise to save his world. You'll note in the story that there are references to David in verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And oftentimes as Westerners who grew up with Anglo-Saxon heritage or whatever heritage you may particularly have, we don't quite know what to do with all of the Israelite references in Jesus' family tree. How do we exactly understand this? But it's no accident that Luke, who was a Gentile, presents Jesus as a Jew. Because God, all the way back in Genesis 12, had singled out a man named Abram and said, Abram, I'm going to bless you and make your descendants great. I'm going to multiply them, and they're going to be a blessing to the nations of the earth. And so God had confined himself to the people of Israel. People ask why, and it's just simply his choice. He singled out Abram, made him a great nation, changed his name to Abraham. And then that promise evolves to Moses. And those promises remain the same, and they're expanded, and they grow, and then they go to David. And God swears to David that one of the sons of David's house would sit on the throne forever. This is why we read Psalm 132 this morning. The promise is put in beautiful poetry for us that one of the sons of David's body would sit on the throne forever. That is how God was going to rule his world and save and deliver it from its sin and brokenness. And so why was Jesus a Jew? Because that's how God said he was going to do it. He was going to do it through a Jewish king. And these announcements being made as Jesus 
comes into the world as he's conceived by the Spirit. These announcements are pointing us that God, after 400 years of silence in Israel's history, was speaking again, and he was doing something, and he was enacting and fulfilling all those promises that it was all coming due. Now, for many people, when they've experienced that kind of silence, there can be an inordinate amount of cynicism. Is he really speaking? Is he really doing something? Is he going to make his plan come due? And this is where it's so interesting to ask, what was Jesus' point? What was he trying to do? And the promises to David and this act of new creation all meets up in a very intriguing way because God was going to save his world. And he was going to do it through the one named Jesus, whose name means God saves. If you turn over to Luke chapter 3, you'll find Jesus' genealogy of all things. People are always puzzled as to why the gospel writers include these, because they seem just to be incredibly boring. But if you look in verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Now, I won't subject you to the rest of the reading of the names, but go to verse 38. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the Son of God. And Luke here cleverly connects Jesus and his lineage to Adam. And this is making explicit what we just said a moment ago about the Holy Spirit, that this is a new act of creation, that God has created now a second Adam, that he has sent him into the world. And then what is the next thing that happens in Luke's gospel to that second Adam who's been sent? If you look in Luke 4, Jesus encounters Satan in the desert. He's tempted. Does that ring biblical bells for you? After Adam had been formed by God in the garden, who do he and Eve encounter? The serpent who was tempting them. And this is exactly what happens to the second Adam as well. He encounters Satan. He tempts him three times, offers him the kingdoms of the world, and Jesus refuses. And this is what God is doing. He's making good on his plan, fulfilling his promises, and he is now saving the world. And he's doing so through one who is obedient. A second Adam who is fully God and fully man who comes to be obedient, that he can share that obedience with us. Because Luke's gospel also ends in a garden. It ends in another garden where there's more temptation, but they didn't, you find this garden of Jesus' tomb where he rises. Because that Jewish king had to trample down our great enemy, and that enemy wasn't Rome, that enemy wasn't America. That enemy wasn't the Democratic or Republican Party. That enemy was something far deeper and more sinister. It was Satan, the one who sought to run away with God's world. And Jesus had to defeat him by going under his power into death, and then he rises, trampling it down and destroying it. 
And then for all who believe in Him, who put their faith in Him, who put their eggs in His basket, you are counted along with Him. That God gives you His righteousness, takes away your dirty and filthy deeds and removes them and calls you one with His Son. This was God's very risky, unusual, highly unique plan to save the world. And when we read these infancy stories of Jesus, these nativity stories, this is what we are encountering. A massive invasion by heaven into a tired and broken world in order to save it and renew it completely has those two parts. God acting in creation and God fulfilling and making good on His Word. So what exactly does this open up, though, for us today? What does this incredible story that some may say, yes, okay, if it happens, so what? And here's the bottom line. That what it means is that the impossible is possible with God. You find this being said towards the close of the story, for nothing will be impossible with God. This is what Mary says that the response to Elizabeth being pregnant, that God is doing the impossible, that He is working something out mysteriously. But as we noted earlier, Luke is a clever and gifted writer. And under the direction of the Spirit, He uses this phrase once again about the impossible and the possible. If you turn to Luke chapter 18, Jesus is having a conversation after teaching. He has called a rich young man to follow him. That man turned away from Jesus. And Jesus then makes this comment how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, in the first century world, if you were rich, it was just presupposed that you had God's favor in your life. And Jesus reverses that, turns that on its head, and says, no, it is difficult. It is with great rigor that a wealthy person like this rich young man will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so the disciples then asked the question, they said, those who, who, who then can be saved in verse 26? And then look at Jesus' answer. What is impossible with men is possible with God. It is the impossible possibility. This is what the story of Jesus' virgin birth opens up for us that His coming into the world opens a path to new life that was not possible, that all the eggs had to be in one basket, that the hopes of the world had to be focused in one place, that Jesus on the cross becomes the focus of all evil and sin and judgment. He absorbs it into Himself, and then He defeats it and crushes it, and all who are in Him then share in His victory, and we're righteous before God. We stand with Him without condemnation and shame. And we can believe and have hope because what Jesus is saying here about this impossible possibility is that, yes, 
a rich man left to himself will not believe. Who then can be saved? But in the power of God, the same spirit that conceived Jesus, the same spirit that formed Adam and Eve from the dust, that that spirit gives us a new heart, inclines us to believe, turns our affections, grants us faith, brings forth life where there was only death. It's the impossible possibility. And that is what Luke is pointing us to in speaking of these words of impossible and once again bringing them back up in Luke chapter 18, pointing us this is the delivery and the import that salvation is now ours, it belongs to us. God makes it possible. And that when He works in our hearts to save us, it is nothing less than an act of new creation. And this is what Paul meant all along in 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. God has spoken him freshly into existence, giving him a new heart. Graham Greene is one of my favorite novelists. He's a British novelist from the early part of the, 19th, of the 20th century. He was a British spy, and so he would travel all around the world covering as a journalist and a writer, which he was also an excellent writer. In his book, The End of the Affair, he tells a fascinating story. It's a story about Maurice and Sarah. Sarah was a married woman. Maurice was a bachelor. He was a committed bachelor. He had an affair with Sarah. They were educated cynics. They didn't have room for God in their lives. They actively worked actually against belief in God. Sarah cuts off the affair abruptly, and it devastated Maurice. As you read Maurice's words, you also begin to understand that it is a stand-in character for Graham Greene. Not too many months later, Sarah dies. She had cancer. And Maurice discovers her journals. They were journals written between when she broke up with him and when she died. They were journals talking about her religious experience. They were also journals talking about how badly she wanted to see Maurice, but how she couldn't also see him. It was gut-wrenching for him to read, and it's a fascinating part of the book. Over three-quarters of the book are the journals as Maurice reads them. But one evening, Sarah goes to a church. She's alone, and she's sitting there in front of the cross in the sanctuary. And she writes this, I thought sometimes I've hated Maurice, but would I have hated him if I hadn't loved him too. This was the subject of so many of the journals about her hatred for Maurice and yet her love for him, that in order to hate him, she had to love him. And then listen carefully to her next observation. As she looks up at the cross, says, Oh God, if I could really hate you, what would that mean? And it was Graham Greene's very clever way of speaking of the biblical reality of what happens 
when God enacts the impossible possibility. Sarah then prays, God, I'm tired. And she finds herself strangely warm to this one that she was disgusted with and hated and wanted nothing to do with, that she had defied in every manner of her lifestyle. And suddenly she was believing and trusting. And friends, this is the miracle that the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus brings into our lives. It's the impossible possibility that we can be made right with God because we're sons and daughters of the first Adam and we disobey and we're broken and we live in this tired world that's all busted and messed up and we're full of our sins and full of ourselves. But the second Adam comes to make that right and he offers himself in our place. God put his eggs in that basket to save the world and he calls us to put our eggs in that basket as well to invest ourselves in him in faith and that this is our hope to be put right with him. And so let's invest ourselves, put our faith wholly, purely, and truly in him. He's the one who comes into the world to save it. He's the one who will return to completely and fully renew it.